Hello, this is Pastor David Spencer from the Church of Chicago. On March 25, 2016, Good Friday, several churches across Chicagoland gathered together for the commemoration of Jesus Christ's crucifixion on the cross for the sin of the world. The theme of this service was the last seven words of Christ. Seven preachers each proclaimed a phrase from the last words of Jesus as he hung on the cross. In order of appearance is Pastor Al Peterson, Lions EFC, Associate Pastor William Scott, The Church of Chicago, Pastor Ron Allen, Retired, Elam EFC, Pastor Delbert Denny, South Suburban EFC, Elder Dave Abel, Elam EFC, Elder Joseph Heiligar, South Suburban EFC, and Senior Pastor David Spencer, The Church of Chicago. We pray you will be both blessed and encouraged by God's Word. Visit us at www.churchofchicago.org for more information. You know, one of the themes I think that's already being shown this evening is the difficulty that we have in focusing and concentrating on what Christ has done for us. And I want to thank you for helping us to do that. Let's pray for a moment. Great forgiver, thank you for this moment, these, these words in front of us, as we examine and think and ponder and let you work into our hearts what you had done for us. Help us to grasp it and hold it and keep it as we move ahead. We ask in your name. I'm reading from Luke chapter 23, verses 32 and 34, through 34. Two others who were criminals were led away to be put to death with him. And when they came to the place that is called the skull, there they crucified him and the criminals, one on his right, one on his left. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they do. Now, forgiveness is something that's thought of in many ways. In common parlance, I guess you'd say forgiveness is very simply letting something go. You know, we've all experienced this. We've all had it happen to us. Someone has wronged us. And they have violated the laws of the relationship that we have with them. Maybe the unwritten laws. You know how it is. Or they betrayed us. They've taken advantage of us, they've hurt us, they've stolen us, they've hit us. We decide, let it go, right? It's kind of like that. That's kind of what you're, you do kind of physically, you kind of, well, let it go. Forgiveness is like letting go of your right to prosecute an offender against you. And some people say today, well, forgiveness is the gift you give yourself. When someone does evil to you, forgiving them allows you to go on and move ahead in your life. Psych psychological literature and common sense tells us that when you forgive someone else who's done you wrong, that you let go of the anger, that the unresolved injustice, it's a very important step in moving ahead in a very healthy way in your life. This is not that. Jesus had, didn't have problems with unresolved injustice. 
the evil that these men did to him was wrong. Even though it was legal, the orders Pilate gave for the execution and the crucifixion were wrong, even though he had the power, but Jesus wasn't letting this go to be psychologically healthy. I'm reminded of a couple other passages in the scriptures. I haven't time to read the parable of the unforgiving servant, but you may recall what happened. A man owed an enormous sum to a king, and he couldn't pay it. And so the king graciously remitted the entire debt. And the servant, whereupon getting his freedom from the debt, went out and began to choke his brother who owed him 10 bucks. Similarly, in the Lord's Prayer, where the Lord says, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors, we're reminded that we cannot expect our sins to be forgiven if we refuse to forgive the sins of other people, right? What we have done against God is the enormous sum compared to anything that anyone else has done to us. This isn't that either. Jesus, of course, had no sins and needed no forgiveness whatsoever. Hence, his forgiving had to be something different. We get a little hint at it in the story of the paralytic, you know, where, the, where they broke the, the roof so that the paralytic could be let down into him, into him. And Jesus turned to the man and he said, your sins are forgiven. Yeah. Well, I thought my problem was that I was a paralytic. Jesus said, well, it is. But his real problem is that he's a sinner. And he says, in order to show you, to demonstrate to you, since you cannot see the sins that this person has done against me and God and everybody else, I will demonstrate to you the fact that I can forgive sins by making him walk again. This is Jesus' purpose. You see, it helps us to get a little closer to the mark. Those critics standing by Jesus, by, by, by him denied that Jesus could forgive sins because God alone, they said, can forgive sins. Now we're getting warmer. Sin in this sense is beyond what people do to each other. Sin in this sense is what we do and what we have done to God. Essentially, like I said at the beginning, we have disobeyed the rules of the relationship. We have done what he did not want us to do and we've not done what he wanted us to do. Jesus, you see, is the great forgiver. Not only the one with the power and the authority to tell someone else that their case is dismissed, that their debt has been canceled and that their sentence has been lifted, but the one who grants it. You see, God has a case against all of us, every single one of us. No one's innocent. We've all sinned. And Jesus, to show that he had the power to heal this man, said, your sins are forgiven also. Jesus spoke about his blood, Matthew 28, 26, being the what? Was it out here on the... Table, I don't know. The blood of the covenant for the forgiveness of sins. In other words, Jesus said his blood was shed for the purpose of forgiving sins. And here, when they put him on the cross, is his first opportunity to apply it then to others as well. Because of his own blood being shed, he had the power to forgive the sins of anyone, 
and every one. I believe that's its entire purpose. I think this is the key, this, this, the core of what the gospel is about, the forgiveness of sins. And I'm so privileged to be able to speak about this part of it. He also forgives them due to ignorance. He says they don't know what they're doing. Do we? We have any clue what it is that we do to him? Unconsciously. You know, the words just fly out, don't they? The thoughts, the impulses. Do we have any clue as to what it is that we do? And he asks the Father to forgive. He is giving a gift that only he can give. He is recommending leniency, you could say, to the Father due to the extenuating circumstances of these people doing what they were doing to him. And of course, it wasn't just they that were doing it, was it? Because he was there on account of all of our sins. In another sense, he's also the person doing the sacrifice. He is the sacrifice, and he has the right to grant sin, I mean, excuse me, grant forgiveness to whomever he wishes to grant it. Why? Well, his love, yes. But his purpose in that love is spoken to us in 1 John chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation, the forgiveness for our sins, and not for our sins only, but also for the sins of the whole world. God bless you, Pastor Al Peterson. Let us examine the words of Jesus Christ that he uttered on the cross. Truly, I say to you, today, you will be with me in paradise. Luke chapter 23 is our text. In order to get a better appreciation and the power of these words of Christ as he's on the cross, I want us to briefly give you the setting of Luke's account of this. So as we go to Luke chapter 23, I'm going to read verses 39 through 43. Feel free to follow along, but I'm going to be moving right along. One of the criminals who were hanged railed at him, saying, are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other rebuked him, saying, Do you not fear God, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he said to him, truly, I say to you, today, you'll be with me in paradise. We're at Calvary, and of course, we see this great contrast of going on here. 
We see hatred towards our Lord and Savior. And we also see great forgiveness right here at the cross. And now we come to what I like to call the conversion at the cross. It is the story of salvation of a crucified criminal. It's a personal story. It's a very personal story. It's about a man, and it's a about a story about salvation. But not only is it a story about this man on the cross, once we examine this, we're going to see that there's a pattern in this story that fits all people who are led to salvation. So this personal story has much more to it than what meets to eye. I'm sure you know that there were two criminals that were being led away to be put to death with Jesus. Verse 32 and 33 tells us they were crucified with Jesus, and one on the right and one on the left. Verse 39 says that one of the criminals railed at him, blasphemed him. But that's not the whole story. Matthew tells us and Mark tells us that both of the criminals, that both of these robbers, that both of these thieves, that they were both hurling sarcastic remarks. They were both blaspheming Jesus while on the cross. They both joined in the mockery. One of the things that kind of surprised me is that as they were in excruciating pain, they, were, they had been flogged, they had been beaten, you know, everything that Jesus had been going through, they were going through, they, they, they were being crucified. But their hatred towards Jesus was so much that they mustered up enough energy to hurl these blasphemous words as life slowly ebbs from them, as they suffocate slowly to death, that they find up enough energy to blaspheme Jesus. But here in Luke's account, all of a sudden, one of the criminals, they get silent. And the other one, we have one left that is blaspheming Jesus. Something happened. All of a sudden, one of the thieves begins to rebuke the other thief for doing what they were both just doing. What happened? I'll tell you what happened. It was nothing short but a miracle, a sovereign miracle from God. This thief, this robber, this criminal, all of a sudden, in a moment, he dramatically is transformed and he becomes, it becomes immediately evident what has happened. He goes from blaspheming Jesus to actually being horrified for the other thief for blaspheming Jesus. He tells him, don't you fear God? He's actually scared for the other thief, the other criminal, this other robber. What has happened? But the other thief, he kept hurling these remarks. He kept saying, are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. And I think this must have been a shock to the other thief who continued on the mockery. He said, you was just doing this with me. He had to be in shock. Here's some quick observations as we move along. Number one, the penitent thief, or the repentant thief, he becomes very aware of God and the fear of God. He openly acknowledges his sins. He says, we deserve, we're, we're deserving what we're getting right now. So he acknowledges we're the one that's guilty. Then he proclaims Jesus' innocence. He says, he didn't do nothing. He's sinless. We are getting what we deserve. And then one and the last thing he does, he affirms Jesus' kingship. Because he says, when you enter into your kingdom, Remember me 
So he affirms Jesus' kingship. The other criminal, he didn't fear God, nor did he fear judgment, no sense of, no sense of guilt, no sense of sinfulness, no, no, not even for desire forgiveness. And he doesn't obviously recognize Jesus' kingship. The other thief, he repented and he recognizes Jesus as the Savior. Now, how do we know this? How do we know this? Then why would he ask him to remember him when he comes into his kingdom unless he thought he was the one that who could save him? And this I really love. My children, uh, they, they have this little saying. They say, something is on point. That was on point. It means that they, this is good. This is right. This is correct. So this is on point. His Christology is on point, as I would like to say. Because why? He says this. He says, remember me when you come into your kingdom. So he understands that the Messiah will bring a kingdom. And he says, remember me when you come to your kingdom. Nobody survived the crucifixion. The Romans, they were experts. It was a craft. It was a craft. They knew how to crucify. They, they, it, they perfected it. So nobody survived the crucifixion. So he also believed that Jesus would die and do what? Rise again. And that's pretty good Christology. And that's exactly what he's saying. He says, remember me when you come into your kingdom. He's saying, when we die, I, I know that's not the end of you. He has come to a vast understanding of who Christ is. He understands that he is the Messiah. But the answer is absolutely astounding to me. The answer that Jesus is, his response to what we call the penitent thief, to this criminal. In verse 43, Jesus says this. Truly, I say to you. Why did he say truly? Because Jesus, he said, I know this is hard to believe. I know this is hard to come say, but you can believe me. You can count on this because it's true. He says, truly, I say to you. This day, you're going to be with me in paradise. What had the thief done to earn this? What did he do? What did he do to earn it? Nothing. He'd be dead before he can do anything. This is grace. This is full reconciliation instantaneously because Jesus says, today. There's no waiting place. There's no transitional place. Absent from the bodies to be present with who? The Lord. This man whose, whose life, probably most of his life, probably qualified him to go to hell. And in one moment, a sovereign God swept down, gave him complete clarity of himself and who Christ is, and the power of the Holy Spirit rescued him from divine judgment. That same day, he met with him in heaven and fellowship with him. Jesus told him, you'd be there with me. Heaven is not a place that we're going to just see Jesus. It's a place that we're going to be with Jesus. Amen. He'll make his abode with us. He asked for a place in the future kingdom of Christ, and he gave him a place in his presence that day and forevermore. So all the mockers, they were wrong. Jesus can save. But the only way Jesus can save was not to save himself. This is the story of one man, but it's also all of our story. We were snatched from the jaws of death. 
We at one time was just like this, these thieves on a cross. We were enemies with God. We were guilty, deserving of death. But by the sovereign will of God and by his grace and his mercy, he came and redeemed us. Won't you consider Jesus on this Good Friday? Thank you, brother. I'm going to read uh, tonight from um, John chapter 19, beginning with the uh, 25th verse. I'm reading from the New International Version. Near the cross of Jesus stood his mother, his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother there and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, Dear woman, here is your son. And to the disciple, here is your mother. From that time on, this disciple took her into his home. Every person uh, in this particular story, every person listed and mentioned in here offers us tonight a powerful example to help us, something to base our lives on, something to look at on the cross. The first example is the Lord Jesus Christ himself, the most important man who ever lived, suspended by spikes between heaven and earth, carrying the most crucial and momentous event that has ever and will ever happen in the universe. He is suffering immeasurably. His body is tortured beyond recognition. Isaiah the prophet spoke about this in the 52nd chapter. He says, but many were amazed when they saw him. His face was so disfigured, he seemed hardly human. And from his appearance, one would scarcely know he was a man. That's from Isaiah the prophet, chapter 52, verse 14. Jesus here is in the very midst of the very purpose for which he came to earth. He is suffering for the sins of the world. Amen. The very apex of his career the reason he came to earth is happening right now and with a body covered with bruises and blood his eyes blackened and and caked with blood his body heaving in order to just catch a breath in the midst of all this Jesus looks down and sees his mother and friends standing right next to the cross. And in that moment, he obeys the fifth commandment given. He honors his parent. His mother had to be close to the cross in order for, him, for her to hear him speak because there was a lot of noise and stuff going on during that time. 
Do you remember the story when Jesus was a little baby and Simeon the prophet held him and prophesied? And do you remember what she said to Mary, the mother of Jesus? He, uh, he told her that a sword will pierce your soul. And she has no doubt experiencing the fulfillment of the prophecy right then and there. And Jesus gives us an example to follow today, and he demonstrates that to us. And that is to honor our parents. To honor our parents. He displays his love and care for her and provides a place for her to live. On his, on his dying time, and friends, God asked you and me to do the same thing, to honor our parents. And God doesn't qualify that statement. If you ever look at it in the scripture, he doesn't say, well, honor your parents if they're good people, if they've never done anything bad to me. No qualification. Right. Honor your parents is, is the way it's supposed to be done. And Jesus knows this, that to honor your parents is the mixture of cement that holds our society together. And that without that cement, a society crumbles. We're all busy people, aren't we? We're all busy. I mean, if we just talked about all of our schedules, we're too busy sometimes to think about these important things about our parents. And many a parent would say, oh, if he'd only call me, if she'd only stop by. Right. Careers and everything, uh, all that's going on. And, and even there may be, even in this room tonight, regarding parents, bad feelings, broken relationships. And there's certainly a lot of that around. Let us follow the example of our Lord Jesus Christ, which he not only taught, but he demonstrated. And obey the fifth commandment. Let me read it. Honor your father and mother. Then you will live a long, full life in the land the Lord your God is giving you. No ifs, ands, or buts on that. Second example. Jesus' mother and friends at the foot of the cross. An example for us. This is a terribly fearful time. Imagine yourself in this situation. Crowds are out of control. Intense feelings and anger everywhere. Roman soldiers carrying out the torture and death of Christ. It's a life-threatening situation for anyone who would even dare to reveal that they even know Jesus or care about him. The text the text says, near the cross, get this, near the cross stood his mother, his mother's sister, Mary Magdalene. And by the way, can I just put a little commercial in here? Why do all these movies make Mary Magdalene a prostitute? She's not a prostitute. They're never mentioned in any of Bible canon that she is. She was a dear woman who from whom Christ cast out seven demons, and a, and a powerful and a close uh, friend of Christ and follower. But here they are standing there. All the disciples ran away, remember? When he was arrested, they took off. Well, Peter followed from a distance, but later on, you know, he 
He denied him three times. Now John, who is the disciple standing there, the one who wrote the words that I'm speaking from here, he gave himself the title, the disciple whom Jesus loved. I mean, I think it was a humble thing in a way. I think he just didn't want to lift up his name. But he wrote in his first epistle, this is so important, and it's this what I closed my message with. This is what he wrote in his first, in the first John, his first epistle, first John chapter four, verse 18. Let me read it to you from the New Living Translation. Listen to this. So love has no fear, because perfect love expels all fear. If we are afraid, it's for fear of punishment. And this shows that we have not fully experienced his perfect love. I'm going to read it again. Such love has no fear. Just imagine these four standing next to the cross. Imagine. Such love has no fear because perfect love expels all fear. If we are afraid, it is for fear of punishment. And this shows that we have not fully experienced his perfect love. The great hymn writer, Fanny Crosby, I grew up uh, in the church singing hymns, and many of her hymns. And this one is one I sang many times, and maybe you have sung too. It might be right in the hymn, though, that, that's there. Jesus, keep me near the cross. There a precious fountain, free to all a healing stream, flows from Calvary's mountain. In the cross, in the cross, be my glory ever. Till my raptured soul shall find rest beyond the river. Near the cross, a trembling soul, love and mercy found me. There the bright and morning star sheds its beams around me. Near the cross, O Lamb of God, bring its scenes before me. Help me walk from day to day with its shadows o'er me. Near the cross I'll watch and wait, hoping and trusting ever, till I reach the golden strand just beyond the river. John, the mother of Jesus, his mother's sister Mary, and Mary Magdalene had experienced his perfect love. And without fear, they drew near the cross of Christ. Have you? Have I? Amen. The scripture that I have for this evening is Matthew 27, 46. About the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lama sapakati, that is my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The crucifixion lasted about a quarter of a day, beginning at 9 a.m. to a glorious conclusion around 3 p.m. Darkness had fallen over the earth. There was silence from around noon to 3. And then our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, uttered his final statements. The statements that I had the privilege of expounding on this evening is Jesus' statement, my God, my God, 
why have you forsaken me? It is believed by many that darkness related with the crucifixion of the Son of the living God represents God's divine judgment on the sin of mankind. We gather this evening to celebrate and give thanks to God for Jesus lovingly becoming the recipient of God's wrath, a wrath that rightly belonged to each and every one of us here tonight. The statement, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me, was not mumbled. It was not said quietly or weakly, but screamed loudly. The earlier verses of the crucifixion account describes the physical pain suffered by Jesus. The thorns placed on his brow, discouraging that ripped the flesh off of his body, the plucking of the beard from his face, the nails piercing his feet and palms were all extremely painful. But when Jesus screamed out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It was an emotional, spiritual outburst of pain, more devastating than all the physical pain combined. Matthew records Jesus' cry in the original language, Aramaic, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. Jesus cried out with a loud voice in the original language. Cry out translates to mean to shout, to scream, a guttural scream or roar. When Jesus screamed out, many in the crowd would have been familiar with these words because they are found in Matthew, I mean Psalms 22, 1, the Messiah, Messianic Psalm. And you see those same words, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus hung on the cross for some six hours. The last three hours, darkness and silence covered the land. Abruptly and suddenly, the silence is shattered by the screaming, the guttural roar from the depths of Jesus' soul. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So just for a few moments, let's break this declaratory statement down as best as we can. It has been said that this statement is such a mystery, so great, so imponderable, that it is said that Martin Luther once said he went into seclusion for a long time trying to understand it and came away as confused as when he began. It has been said in the secrets of divine sovereignty and omnipotence, the God-man was separated from God for a brief time at Calvary. Sometimes the best way to interpret a particular verse is to begin by sharing what it does not teach. The forsakenness cannot mean that the eternal communion between the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit was permanently severed or broken because God could not and did not cease to be triune. It does not mean that God the Father ceased to love Jesus the Son. The words, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me, are not the words of a defeated Jesus. For within his soul, Jesus held onto the assurance that God was holding him, that it was part of God's divine plan for victory over sin. Yet in another sense, there was a sense, a feeling of being forsaken. For Jesus not only felt forsaken, he was forsaken not only by his disciples, but more importantly, by his heavenly Father, God. And as Jesus called out to his Father, it was like God had closed his ears to the cries of his Son. No response was uttered by the Father, no dove was sent down, no voice saying, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased, just silence. Jesus cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus doesn't use the Aramaic word Abba, but Jesus calls his father God. This is the only time in the synoptic gospels that Jesus is recorded as addressing God as God and not as father. 
God the Father was fully able to immediately stop Jesus' horrific suffering, yet he chose not to. When Jesus suffered on the cross, God was silent. God forsook him. Jesus was now speaking to God as one numbered with transgressors, as one who had taken on the sins of the world. Jesus was speaking as sin. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says he made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. My God, why have you forsaken me? That wonderful word, why, that many of us have asked sometimes when we're going through a difficult time, why? Was this a declaration of protest? Was this a declaration of a lack of understanding? Was this a declaration of innocence? Jesus, being God, always knew the time of his death would come. He always knew that he was the redeemer. The why may have to do with the fact that it's one thing to know something, it's another to experience it. For God knew about death, but he had never personally experienced it. Jesus, the God-man, was separated from God for a brief time at Calvary. As the furious wrath of the Father was poured out on the sinless Son, Jesus Christ, and his matchless grace became sin for those who believe in him. The Bible tells us in the Old Testament, your eyes are too pure, speaking of God, to approve evil, and you can't look on wickedness with favor. God forsook Jesus when Jesus was on the cross because he could not look upon sin, even when it was his own son, Jesus Christ. Since Jesus died as the perfect substitute, as a sacrificial lamb, for the sacrifice for the sins of the world, the righteous heavenly father had to judge him according to that sin. Jesus took upon himself our transgressions as Isaiah 53, 5, 5 tells us. He was delivered up because of our transgression, which Paul tells us in Romans 4, 25. He died for our sins in 1 Corinthians 15, 3. He bore our sins in his body on the cross, 1 Peter 2, 24. What a sacrifice. What a cost. He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all, Romans 8.32a. Even though we have forsaken God again and again and again, God will not. God will not forsake us. Jesus was forsaken by God in our place because God won't forsake us. Someone here tonight may feel forsaken. But there's good news tonight. God will not remain silent, but he will provide comfort and empathy. I will never leave you or forsake you. Someone here tonight may have forsaken someone else, but there's good news tonight. God will offer mercy and forgiveness because that's the type of God we serve. Amen. Good evening, everybody. It is truly a privilege to be here tonight. I mean that uh, very sincerely, and I think it's just a, a tremendous idea that Pastor Spencer came up with to focus on these um, seven words that Jesus uttered while on the cross because, you know, sometimes we need to get a picture of it. I mean, really, Good Friday and Easter should be every day for us, should it not? It, it really should be. And yet sometimes, you know, we say thank you to Christ, we say thank you, Father, for your Son, but we don't often register 
what Jesus went through on our behalf. And, and sometimes that's why stories are effective, why parables are effective, why, why types that God has used in Scripture are effective. And I remember the first time I came to this church, uh, the first two Sundays, Pastor Ron preached two sermons, and he gave two examples of sacrificial love. One, a mother saving her child, giving up her life to save her child. But then the one about the train conductor who had to sacrifice his son to save all the people on the train. And I never forgot that because it did register just a little bit where we are at in Christ Jesus. Okay? So our scripture tonight is John 19, 28, where Jesus says, I thirst. After this, Jesus, knowing that he was now finished, said to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. A jar full of sour wine stood there, so they put a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. It's interesting that uh, it's a fulfilled prophecy, and there are so many prophecies about Jesus Christ. And where does it start, folks? Does it start in the New Testament? Does it start in Isaiah? Does it start? Where does it start? Amen. It starts in Genesis, Genesis 3.15. That is where we first hear the gospel. That is where God first promises that he is going to fix this sin problem and he's going to send somebody into the world who's going to have his heel crushed, but that the one who perpetrated this crime would have his head crushed. And so that's where we're at. When Pastor Spencer said, Dave, I want you to give us 10 minutes on I thirst. I have to admit that there wasn't a flood of theology that came over me thinking, wow, I've got a lot of great stuff to share with the congregation about this. Uh, my mind was kind of a blank in, in all honesty, but I think that's a good thing. I think it's a good thing just to look at the text, think about what was going on and come at it with a simple approach. And one of the first things that came to my mind, I thirst. Why did Jesus thirst? He was human. He was fully God, but, but fully man. And as a man, he felt pain. He got hungry. He got tired. And he got thirsty. So that's the first branch of this, the first leg of it, if you will. But then you say, well, why was he human? He's God. Why did he become human? Well, he did that for us, to be the last Adam to go to the cross in our place, to suffer for what we should have suffered. So that's why he became man. That's why he was in the position to feel pain and thirst and that sort of thing. But then the, what's the next thing? The next thing is, is that he actually is thirsty, but not just thirsty because he's been, you know, working or, you know, uh, out in the fields or doing carpentry work, whatever it was, he was thirsty and we read in the text because he was on the cross in our place suffering. And now all of a sudden, this begins to take on a whole new hue, a whole new level of importance than just someone being thirsty, even more than our Savior being thirsty. It's why he was thirsty, why he said, I thirst. Folks, we've all been thirsty. We've all been there. You know, whether we're out working hard or working out, uh, we've been thirsty. You know, sometimes, you know, if anybody who's ever had surgery, you wake up and you're just, you're parched, you know, you, you, you're thirsty. How many times have you left to go someplace to come back home and you're two minutes into the trip and the kids say, man, I'm really thirsty. Can we stop? No, we're almost home. 
but I'm really thirsty. So those types of things happen. And then we do have dire circumstances, of course, where people get cut off from a water supply and all that sort of thing, and it's really a, a devastating situation. They are in dire straits because they don't have water. One of the things I always think about when I think of somebody being thirsty was the movie Ben-Hur. Everybody see Ben-Hur? Well, the feeling of the thirst of these men in this one scene was palpable. Because Judah Ben-Hur, he's on a slave chain gang. They're being paraded through the desert before they get on this slave ship. And you could see it, the, the dry, cracked lips. The Romans bring the water out. The Romans got the water first, then the horses, then the slaves. But they had a particular vendetta against Judah Ben-Hur, and he got none. And just when he thought that there was a little bit of water he could have gotten, that was denied him. But then who comes into the scene immediately at that point? The character of Jesus Christ. They show him from the back, and he kneels down to give Ben-Hur water. And in the story, it changed Judah's life. Changed his life. Now, folks, I know that's a movie. There's no record in the Bible of Jesus giving water to anybody named Ben-Hur. But let me tell you, the theme of it is spot on. Why is that? Because Jesus is the living water. He is our living water. And so, and what's so interesting is, is that he's on the cross, needing water, saying, I thirst. As he is dying, he is giving us the living water that is who he is. You know, we need water and food for our physical sustenance. We need water and food for our eternal sustenance, too. But... Water, regular water and regular food aren't going to cut it. We need the bread of life. We need the living water who is Jesus Christ. You know, Charles Spurgeon, I read a little bit of his commentary, and it struck me because he said, here is God, the second person of the Trinity. He created the water. He could command the water. In an instant, the water could come to him and quench him, but he didn't do it because he did have a mission. He did have a job, to put it mildly. But now we go back to the cross. Jesus is thirsty. He's been beaten. He's been tortured. He's been whipped. He's been put on a cross with metal bolts driven through his flesh, hung up high, the sun bearing down, the heat unbearable, loss of blood, can't breathe. Is it any wonder, he said, I thirst? So now, it's ramped up even more, the significance of these two words, I thirst. Because now, it's physical suffering to the nth degree, things we can't even contemplate. But then we have to take it another step. And what is that next step? He was bearing our sins in his body. He who was without sin became sin for us. And so in addition to the physical, horrific conditions... He's also bearing our sins in his body. That takes I thirst to an even higher level. Can we imagine it? Of course not. It's incomprehensible. But it also has universal significance. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him shall not perish, 
but have everlasting life. This is a universal call. So Jesus on the cross saying, I thirst, has universal significance. It is we look to Christ, and we look to what he did for us, and we trust him. Now, it takes on eternal significance. We think about Jesus praying the night before he was crucified. And he says, Lord, if there's any other way, Father, if there's any other way, let this cup pass from me. He's, he's sweating drops of blood. Can you imagine that? I mean, I know we can. I'm speaking rhetorically, but just try for a second. God the Son, the second person of the Trinity, in such derision, in such tumult, in such torture, that he cries out to the Father, is there any other way? But he goes ahead anyway. We did our series in Hebrews a couple months ago. And you can read scripture again and again. And sometimes you pass over things. And then all of a sudden, it's like a thunderbolt. And I had a thunderbolt studying Hebrews. Because when we got to Hebrews chapter 12, <clears throat> and I read, for the, joy, <laughs> for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross. Jesus said for the... The Bible says that for the joy that was set before him, Jesus endured the cross. Now, wait a minute. We just talked about in the Gospels how Jesus dreaded the cross. Isn't that a contradiction? The answer is no, it's not a contradiction. It's a beautiful symmetry of dreading something and yet loving us so much that he goes through with it to complete that process of saving us. Now, I want to wrap this up very quickly. Any lady here who's ever had a baby knows the pain can be unbearable. But when the baby is delivered, the pain pales into insignificance because of the joy of that new life, the newness of life. But then you turn around and do it again. <laughs> and why? Because of that new life. And I can't imagine there is one lady here who ever says, boy, I can't wait to have this pain. I'm sure everyone dreads that pain. But what comes out on the other side is again a new life, the newness of life. And I come back to this part in the Bible and I think about this, folks. The joy that was set before him, Jesus endured the cross. He did dread it. Of course he did. But he did it on our behalf. And here's one more thing and I'll, and I'll close. You know, Sometimes I think selfishly. Jesus died for me. He died for us. We're going to go to heaven. We've got important work to do here as believers in Christ, but we're going to go to heaven someday. We've got the millennial kingdom to look forward to. We've got the eternal order to look forward to. You know, we're going to have perfection, perfect love, perfect fellowship, perfect joy with our perfect Savior for eternity. I'm so joyful thinking about that. But here's an interesting thing that I never caught before. <laughs> For joy that was set before him, Jesus endured the cross. Guess what, folks? He's joyful too. Why else would he be joyful other than we're going to be saved and be with him? Is that not amazing? What a God, what a Savior. Amen.
Amen. It is finished. Jesus had just gone through the ordeal, but he still had time in the presence of mind to bring salvation to the lost. He still had time in the presence of mind to take care of his mother. But here we are at the end, and he does not say, I am finished. As if he has been defeated, as if he's throwing his, his arms up and saying, I can't hold out any longer. He says instead, it is finished. John 19.30 says, when he had received the drink, Jesus said, it is finished. With that, he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. The sixth word, it is finished, was a loud cry that rang out over the ghastly scene. You had weeping women there, snickering priests and jeering soldiers. They must have looked up at this almost unrecognizable, severely beaten mass of human flesh. As he bellows over the crowd these words, it is finished. What was he saying now? He talked a lot before. What was he saying now that he's dying? What was finished? These three words are pregnant with meaning. For the servant, when the job was completed, they meant, I have completed the job I was given to do. For the priest, after he examined the offering, they meant it was a perfect offering and it was accepted. And for the artist, they meant the picture was complete and it was excellent. And for the merchant, they meant the debt was paid in full. It's important to note that this declaration refers to an action that has been completed in the past with results into the present. It literally means it was finished and as a result it is forever done. Put another way, it was finished in the past, it is still finished in the present, and it will be finished in the future. All has been done that was needed to be done. Nothing more was needed at all. So what was finished? Well, the obvious, we can start with that. When Jesus died, his suffering was finished. Isaiah 53 verse 3 says that Jesus would face intense suffering during his entire life. He was despised and rejected by men. A man of sorrows and familiar with suffering. Like one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised. And we esteemed him not. Jesus was born to suffer. God the Father turned his back. And the sun stopped shining for three hours 
as the accumulated ugliness of sin of the whole world was poured out on him. The cross was no accident. Jesus did not die a martyr's death. He was sent to suffer and die on purpose. The cup of God's wrath was drained on him. The awful storm of God's righteous anger was spent. The wages of sin was paid and divine holiness was satisfied. His suffering was complete. What else was finished? Secondly, the sacrifice was fulfilled. For hundreds of years, hundreds of years, rivers of blood had flowed from the altar of God. And yet the cost of sin was never fully paid. A priest spent a good part of every day, every day killing animals and splashing the blood on the altar. He did this day after day, week after week, month after month. The priests were not allowed to sit down when they were on duty, symbolizing that their job was never completed. Each day brought new sins. Each day brought new sins and a fresh cry for innocent blood. But when Jesus died, he died as the final and perfect sacrifice. His blood opened up the way in the Holy of Holies, vividly pictured when the temple's curtain was torn from top to bottom as he took his final breath. God demanded an unblemished, perfect, bloody sacrifice as payment for sin. There was no way we could meet this requirement, and so he sent his son to die in our place, shedding his innocent blood, paying the price, and offering himself as the final sacrifice for our sin. He was both priest and sacrifice. In Hebrews 10, 11, and 12, the Bible says, Day after day, every priest stands and performs his religious duties. Again and again, he offers the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when this priest had offered all for one time, just one time, sacrifice for sin, just one time he did it, he sat down at the right hand of God. God did it right the first time around. The work of Jesus is complete. He is seated, not standing because the price has been paid and the mission has been accomplished. The work is done. What else was finished? Satan was finished. While Satan still has some power, he is a vanquished foe. The Bible says in Hebrews 2 verse 14, so that by his death, Jesus Christ, he might destroy, 
not just make a dent. He would destroy him who holds the power of death that is the devil. Satan is defeated. And yet he still torments us as believers, doesn't he? But like a buzzing bee, Satan has planted his stinger into the hands and the feet of our Savior. But because Jesus took the full brunt of Satan's fury, the evil one's power has been diffused. Colossians 2 verse 15 says, Having disarmed the power and the authorities, he made a public spectacle of them triumphing over them by the cross. Yes. Satan can buzz around and cause problems, but he has lost the war. Amen. In 1 Corinthians 15, verse 55, the Bible says, Where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? The price has been paid, and Satan is defeated. Finally, what was finished? Salvation was secured for us. I like this one because everything has been done that needed to be done. And we now have open access to God the Father. Everything that needed to be done has been done. For us to have access to the Father. Nothing. Nothing. No thing. Needs to be added. To what has already been accomplished. The work of man's redemption. Was finished. The word tells us there is nothing left for man to do. But to enter into the results of Christ. Finished work. There is victory over sin in the cross. We cannot, we cannot pay for things that have already been paid in full. You cannot pay for something that has already been paid in full. And if we insist on paying for our salvation. It is an insult to Jesus Christ and what he did on the cross. So coming to church, giving your tithes, being nice to your neighbor is a nice thing to do. But that does not do anything for your salvation. The work has already been done. It is finished. Salvation is not a do-it-yourself project or even a 50-50 arrangement. Amen. Jesus has done it all, so we don't have to. Jesus' mission was finished, but ours is just beginning. So let us strive to finish our course and do it well. Let us do it today. We'll all be glad that we did. Amen. Amen.
Luke chapter 23, verse 46. Then Jesus, calling out with a loud voice, said, Pater, eskenas su paratitamai tu pnumamu. Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Jesus begins these very last words with a cry out to God as Father. This idea of God as Father was foreign to the people because uh, they viewed God as far and distant yet present. We'll follow you uh, by the cloud and by the fire, uh, but God, you stay there. Jesus begins this cry to God the Father with a quote from Psalm 31. Psalm 31 verse 1 begins with a statement of total trust uh, in the Lord as refuge. In this psalm, David calls Yahweh the Lord he calls him not only refuge, but he calls him faithful. You are so faithful to me. David calls him fortress. David calls Yahweh rock. And he also calls him blessed. And by implication, he calls Yahweh deliverer as well. But never once, not one time, did David call Yahweh Father. Yes, God's steadfast love is mentioned, but not Father. And this is very consistent in the Old Testament. But God as Father is directly mentioned in 26 of the 27 New Testament books. Old Testament books, no. But this makes sense given the disciples who uh, asked Jesus, remember this, uh, Jesus, uh, we need to learn how to pray the right way. Can you teach us how to pray? Jesus says, of course, I'll teach you how to pray. And when you begin to pray, uh, you are to pray in this manner. Our Father. In a good father, we have come to trust. In a good father, we have come to believe that they always have our best interest in mind. Of course, this is not true of a bad father. This is not true of an absent father. This is not true of a malicious father. A good father loves even in those moments that appear to be tenuous, full of stress, and full of tension. Just ask my kids. Jesus knew that the Father was present. 
He was waiting even when it was his wrath that demanded that Jesus be on the cross in the first place. So Jesus calls out to the Father. Oh, not so that everybody else could hear, uh, but he, he spoke uh, the name Father uh, out of his innate need in his humanity. Remember, as you've already heard, that Jesus was still a man. He needed sleep. He needed food. Jesus needed water just like you and I. So in the midst of rejection, he cried out to God in this dark moment. His body uh, racked with pain, but his spirit knew nothing could separate him because of who he was. So if God is your father, know that nothing can ever break that bond between you uh, and him. Uh, and when it has been forged, especially and mainly through the blood of Jesus Christ. What can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus? Absolutely nothing. So if you are in Christ, then know that God is your Father. Go ahead. Call him Father. Father. So Jesus committed his spirit to the Father. Jesus committed his spirit to the Father, but not his body. Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Jesus yells from the cross. But wouldn't that be the ultimate in, in the playing out of our faith? Wouldn't that be wonderful? That the moment that we go home to be with the Lord, it's not just our spirit, but it's also our body as well. Oh, there would never be ever again any need for Christian funerals. When we would get together, when someone passes away, their body would be gone. It would simply be bon voyage, good for it. And then every time uh, someone kicked a bucket, we would be absolutely thrilled. But honestly, why not now? Why aren't we thrilled now? Because when we pass away, we see the vestiges of our bodies laying in repose right before us. But know that what we see in the casket is not what we get in heaven. So it was not time for his body to be glorified, but soon it would be. Here we may understand this idea of being absent from the body, but what? Present with the Lord. 2 Corinthians 5.8 Paul was not the originator of that verse, but he got it, right? Uh, that Paul understood uh, that obviously Paul recalled when Jesus says, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And they took him down and they buried him. Uh, his spirit was gone, but his body was there. That Jesus Christ, 1 Corinthians 15, 23 says, But each in his own order, Christ, the first fruits. Then at his coming.
becoming those who belong to Christ. Uh, what that means is that uh, Christ is resurrected from the dead. Uh, we will be resurrected from the dead. Uh, Jesus uh, came from the dead. Uh, we will come uh, from the dead. Jesus must die. We must die. Uh, but each in his own order. Uh, first Christ, the first fruits. And then those who belong to him. At that very moment, he was present with God as the Logos, while his body needed to remain in repose for three days and, and three days only. So the Spirit of Christ exited this earthly realm while the body of Christ remained behind. Here Jesus would present his body uh, to the process of nature, uh, but it still did not have to be. Could Jesus have called uh, a thousand angels to rescue him? Could Jesus have instantaneously healed himself? Could Jesus have called fire out from heaven and consumed all his enemies before him, including those disciples who had ran away? Uh, could he not done that? Could he not come down from uh, the cross? Death came, nevertheless. But death couldn't just take Jesus. A death couldn't just show up and say, all right, it's time to go, Jesus. Jesus had to give death permission to complete his task. John 10, verse 18. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down. And I have authority to take it up again. He says, this charge I have received from. What does he say? Uh, he says, this charge I received from my father. Jesus said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Yes, he could have said that uh, I have been defeated. Yes, he could have said uh, I give up. Yes, he could have said that everything that I've tried to do for these last three years, it has come to this. But he didn't say it. Why? Because he was not done. During his earthly ministry, <laughs> Jesus found himself in the hands of many people. During birth, he was in the hands of his mother who wrapped him in swaddling cloths. You remember that? And how she nurtured him and cared for him in the beginning of his humanity. Later we find him in the hands of Simeon, a man of God, man of God, who the Lord allowed to, to hold and touch Israel's Messiah. But now, Jesus is in the hands of God, the Father. Total trust. Total faith. As he taught the original disciple, he teaches us as well. 
There is one more lesson to be expressed, one more lesson to be learned, and that is the resurrection. But for now, we must totally trust in the Lord that we must commit our lives into his hands, no, not just when we die, but we must commit our lives into the hand of God now. There is no time like the present because we never know when our time is up. So God wants us to do what? To trust in him with what? With all of our heart and lean not to our own understanding. God calls us all to take our spirit, for that matter, even our body. Lord, we give it all to you. And you know what? If you give your spirit to God, if you give your body to God, that means give all your junk to God too. That means give your job to God, give your spouse to God, give your children to God, give everything to God. Don't hold on to anything tightly. Will you trust God? Jesus says, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you. that you have blessed us with your marvelous word, that you have come to us to soften our hearts and to open our hearts to the reality of who you are. We thank you, Lord God, that even if for some in here uh, that we're just wondering what is it all about. Some are just looking in from, uh, from the outside, uh, trying to make sense of it all. For them, Lord God, we're praying feverishly right now that you would have your way, Lord God, that they would come to Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. And with our heads bowed even now uh, that you've heard these last words of Jesus Christ and you knew that uh, one day that you needed to make this decision that you needed to trust to him because you too, as was I, a sinner before God. 